0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you'll bless this session by giving me ideas of what to say and what to leave unsaid. Fill us with your spirit according to your own plan. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. So we're not done with Romans chapter fourteen. Uh, we need to. We're still working on it. And uh, while I was here, because you know where we left off, I was talking about the Passover, how that was a doubtful issue in the first century, and uh, you've been Adventists some of you long enough to know it's still a doubtful issue in this century. Thank you. And uh, welcome back. Yeah, you're not really late. It just says thirty right now. I just started thirty seconds early, so don't feel ashamed. <laughs> don't. Um, Paul talked about the Passover in such a way as to help us to be tolerant with each other. So someone came up during the the inter and during the ten minutes we just passed. And uh, said, well, what about people who are saying we need to keep the feast today? I think probably one or two of you would be in that group from from a group this size. Probably one or two of you would be in that group. And I think Romans 14 verse 1 gives us a great guideline. What it says is, receive those that have these doubtful disputations, but not to the point of disputing. Receive those of a weak conference, but not to the point of arguing. Uh, What Paul would say is that you and I can disagree about whether you need to keep the Passover, but as soon as you make that the present truth, you don't fit in the church anymore. Because the church has a commission of what to take to the world. It's the three angels' messages. It's the message for this time. And as soon as you make it something else, then you've just interfered with what needs to get done. So I don't have any trouble at all with you believing that you should keep the feast, even trying to convince me that it's good to keep the feast. I don't even mind if you convince other people it's good to keep the feast. But as soon as you say it's required, as soon as you want to teach that it's required when the church is saying it's not required, suddenly you're making this an issue. And that's just what verse 1 says should not be permitted. Verse 1 says that if you want to make an issue that isn't an issue in your church, you need to start your own group. You make your own group. You determine for your group what the negotiables are and the non-negotiables are, like that. Now, I don't mean by this that the church always gets it right about what is and is not negotiable. I don't mean this. Maybe I should give the example. Uh, I think I need to write some things on the board, and I'll do it as I'm talking. Your pioneers, by the pioneers in, in this sentence, it's just a fancy word Adventists use for the Adventists between the 1830s and the 1870s. Those people, when, when things were getting together. When I say pioneers, I don't mean they're more special than you, I just mean they're a lot older, All you know, right, they're that period of time. Uh, the pioneers were the ones that formulated a lot of the things that we teach today. Uh, they came out of many different churches and they came together on a group of teachings. But those those p- pioneers, many of them came from an organization called the Christian Connection. The Christian Connection was a, t- a denomination, it was a localized denomination in Massachusetts that had a very interesting set of beliefs that attracted a lot of Bible-believing people. They were non-creedal. What does that mean? That is, the Bible was their creed. They didn't have another creed that you have to, you know, say, this is what I believe, blah, 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 and now you can be a Methodist. It wasn't like that. They didn't have a creed, but they did generally not accept the idea of the Trinity. Generally, the Christian connection did not believe in the Trinity because they found it wasn't in the Bible. It was a real simple idea for them. If you don't have a creed except the Bible, then the Trinity really can't be part of your creed. At least the word can't. Does that make sense to anyone what I'm saying? Because it's not there. And their position on the Godhead was that there's God the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Spirit. But uh, they probably didn't think of it in any way like the Catholics would say at that time. The Catholics, when they would teach about these three, sometimes in their artwork, they almost picture it as like one head with three faces. There there are some artworks, uh, some, some sculptures made like this. The theologians talk saying some things that it's hard to even... like the, You can say the ideas, but it doesn't mean you understand them. They teach that the Son is eternally being born from the Father. Not that it was done in the past, or not that it's going to be done in the future, not that it's happening now, but it's all at the same time forever. So that there never was a time when the Son wasn't. There'll never be a time when He isn't. But He is always being born. I think that whether you believe that or not, you really don't. Because, I mean, if part of belief is comprehension, I think you can't comprehend that idea sufficiently to believe it. Uh, you, we just, and then they would say that the Spirit is eternally emanating from the Father and the Son. So that since it's always happening, in one sense, they are one. But in another sense, they are three. And the Christian connection, when they viewed that, viewed that as just a bunch of theological nonsense. Like, you can't find any of that idea in the Bible. It's just talk, it's air. And where's it coming from? So they didn't tend to believe it. And some of the people that came into our faith from out of that group included James White and included Uriah Smith. And, uh, and you know what these men have in common? They were two of the primary editors of our primary church paper for decades. So other people that came into Adventism, like William Miller, he was a Trinitarian. You know, William Miller, he was a Baptist. And, uh, and there were others that were And when the Adventists came together, one of the things they agreed on was the Sabbath, eventually. One of the things they agreed on was the investigative judgment, eventually. But they never even tried, at least it looks like to me, they never even tried to agree on the issue of the Godhead. They just didn't. And when you look at what our non-Trinitarian pioneers wrote on the topic... They wrote, I made a list of seven of them, including J.N. Andrews and uh, Loughborough, and, and I'm not remembering the other ones in the list right now. They probably will come to me. J.H. Uh, Wagner as opposed to his son that's more famous. And a few. When I made a list of these seven, I found that they made 50 different books, lots of books on the Ten Commandments, on the mortality of the soul, on American prophecy, On the Antichrist, on the seal of God, lots of books, zero books on the issue of the Godhead. What's going on there is that you have non-Trinitarian views but those views are not considered to be the message for this time. They're not the message to take to the world. Of course Adventists in North America were reaching out to the Christians in North America which were largely Trinitarian. So here you have non-Trinitarian James White reaching out to Trinitarians around the world and he's not even trying to persuade them of his view of the thing. That's not part of his mission. And what I would, if, if some of you are anti-Trinitarians today, what I'd say to you is, I wish you'd imitate our pioneers. I wish you'd see that what should unite us should be the mission. That when we have a mission and I don't really want to change this into a lecture on the issue of Trinitarianism. I certainly could, but I don't want to do that. It's not really my topic for today. I will say that I am all for, in our church, softening our, our 28 fundamental beliefs on the issue of the Godhead. I'm for softening those. What You say, what do you mean softening? I mean, we have formulated those not for the sake of of being the most biblical we can be, but for looking the best to the creedal churches. When you look at the creedal churches, they all start with those doctrines that we're starting with. They do it in the same way we do, just just like that. One, two, three. And I think if we softened those to allow for people who think like James White and Uriah Smith, it really wouldn't hurt us at all. Like, let me tell you about how I think. I am sure that Jesus has eternally existed. But I'm not sure whether or not he's eternally been known as the Son. I don't really know that. I am sure that the Spirit is going to exist for eternity. I'm not I think probably the Spirit has always existed, but I'm not sure. I think probably. I might even say most likely, but no prophet ever said anything like that. There isn't any statement about it. I don't think that as a church, we want to demand that we harmonize on ideas that are not based on plain statements of prophets. As soon as we we try to force harmony on something that isn't plainly stated, we can put a stake in between people who are both conscientious students who come to different conclusions. So Jesus, in the New Testament, uh, says, he blows on people and says, receive my spirit. And in Romans 8, the Spirit is called the Spirit, of, the Spirit of Jesus and then the Spirit of God in Romans 8. You can find both phrases there. So I have a friend, I have more than one of these really, who when I, Eugene, when I read those verses, I read it like this, that the Spirit is so similar to Jesus that when that I can say that Jesus is in my heart when I really mean the Spirit is in my heart, that it's about the same thing. But when we say, into my heart, Lord Jesus, what we really mean is we want the Spirit to be in our hearts. That's what we really mean. Because Jesus is in heaven, right? He's in the most holy place. They are so similar that we even talk that way. And I think that if I talk that way and you talk that way, then if Ellen White says about the Spirit that the Spirit is Jesus, I I just think that just means what I mean. It just means that when we say that Jesus is in our heart, we mean the Spirit. That's how I understand it. But I have a friend that when he reads that, he reads it to be just what it says. Do you know that in the Reformation time, this was a very similar type of situation that split Zwingli and Luther? That Luther read, this is my body. So he believed that Jesus was with the bread that we eat at communion. Zwingli said, Luther, when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, he didn't mean it was a four-footed animal. He was making a metaphor. They couldn't agree on this. And because they couldn't agree on it, when Zwingli put out his hand to shake hands with Luther, Luther wouldn't shake his hand. And then Zwingli burst into tears because it was so important to him to have harmony in the church. And then that made Luther feel bad. He said, we can't shake hands as brothers, but we can shake hands as... And he said something else, and he tried to fix it, but it that didn't really work. You know, when that happened the common people of germany and france really viewed themselves as one movement of bible believing people but the theologians were differing on some minor points but if you were trying to decide whether you're going to be catholic or risk the stake that little difference over the communion bread just as it seemed to you like a, you know like it's not worth a split can you understand what I'm trying to say? It's not worth a split. But if you're Luther or Zwingli, what you feel like is truth is truth and we can't compromise on it. Uh, we, we have to... And, and so these guys couldn't agree. And uh, what I'm trying to say to you is that Romans 14 could have been helpful to them. Maybe more helpful to Luther. I think Zwingli saw it. Zwingli would have been content for Luther to have Luther's idea. It was Luther that wasn't content for Zwingli to have Zwingli's idea. It could have been helpful to Luther. In a similar way just 200 years later George Whitfield and John Wesley they were they disagreed on something very fundamental and that is whether or not free will exists Who were those two George Whitfield and John Wesley Wesley certainly believed it existed it was obvious to him as the day because you can see people making decisions Whitfield Believe that, yes, people are making decisions, but God has foreordained that. It's as clear as crystal in the Bible. It's not to him that runs, or to him that... It's God that, you know, Romans 9. These guys could not agree on this. But when they got together, they realized that what they both agreed on is that people need to repent of their sins and change their life if they're going to go to heaven. They need to be appealed to and preached to and helped. And they decided to put their differences apart and to be friends and co-workers, even though they disagreed on this most fundamental issue of theology. And they went, and you know, in the great controversy, that story is there. How many of you read it about Whitfield and Wesley? It's there, just like that. It says, as they learned charity in the school of Christ, they learned to put their differences apart. And what I'm saying to you is Romans 14 was designed for that. It was designed to help us know that we don't have to fight over everything. Yes? Could you repeat again what the issue was that they were divided over? Free will. That is the question about whether you really somehow can decide yourself or whether or not uh, God decided ahead of time. But I think Whitfield had a soft idea of Calvinism. And even he would say that you need to be born again and you need to be converted and and turn from your sins. And to him, it was more of a theological fact that it's up there, but we really don't need to think about it. It's not really what's going on in our personal experience. Even, Even William Miller encountered both of these and he tried to bring peace between them he said, it's like you're on a boat that's sinking and one person is, wonders if he has the right rope and the other one's afraid he's going to let go of it. Uh, that, that is, they both know they need to get out of the water and really, why should they fight over this issue right now? Maybe that doesn't make any sense to you, but it, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to draw a picture of it. <laughs> I'm saying that in Romans 14... God has shown us that it really isn't essential that we argue about everything that we disagree about. So, why don't you tell me, what are some things that that people are arguing about in your local church? What's going on in your local church? Women's ordination. Do you live in Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay, anything else people argue about in your local church? Whether all sins were forgiven in the cross. Okay, so forensic justification. And Do you live in Michigan? Okay. Okay. So whether or not you can go out to eat, or whether or not you can cook the food, yeah. Amen. Did they conclude the answer to that yet? The ones that didn't want to don't come to potluck, and everyone else goes to potluck. That's all there you go. Well, freedom of choice. Uh, let's. You were raising your hand back there. When do you baptize someone? Okay. Do you have to or be overcomers before you know all these things get through them or don't you know, that up. So I want to talk about each of these issues we brought up. But let me just take two more hands. And I need to stop or I'll never have time to talk about them all. Uh, what's the one you're thinking? Okay. We started having potluck. We were having sharing time before. During all of COVID, mm-hmm. and now we're starting to do positive. They're showing out and eating and not sharing, not bringing their own food to share with everyone else. So they're trying to eat their own food to avoid getting infection spread. No, they're not bringing any food. They're coming in and they're eating. Oh, so I do that. When you all bringing food, mm-hmm. they're not bringing food. I so understand. I had an announcement saying that if you're not going to eat, if you're, if you're going to eat, you need to bring food to eat because you have to eat. Okay, so, so you started, I understand. Just yeah. And then sir you had one music style. okay music styles, so I like these examples I think you're gonna I think you wouldn't to go to sleep if we talk about these <laughs> I, I, Right, I, I think that this just will have like no problem with it. So you need a hose. I, I Think no what she needs is a nap and I don't mind if you go to sleep I think, <laughs> This time I'm just gonna let it happen. Okay. I'm just gonna just gonna let it go I think Let's talk a bit about women's ordination because I was on TOSK, you know, the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, and that was a life-changing experience for me in ways that have nothing to do with ordination. It just really lowered my, my how much I valued theologians in the world. <laughs> and it just really, really reduced it. And uh, it even happened there that a friend of mine, Gerard Domstiek, was reading a lot of papers in the Against Women's Ordination. That was his position. He was reading a lot of them, and I was also in that position in that committee. And uh, someone complained that he was reading too many papers. So he came to me one day and asked me to read one of his papers. At my age now, I would say, that's not a good idea, but I was younger then, and I said, sure. And uh, it's a bit like fighting in someone else's armor. And so I got up there, and the way it works at this, at this meeting is you read the paper, and then people can ask questions from the floor. You know, they line up at mics, and they can ask questions. So I was reading this paper, and while I was reading, I realized I'm one-third done, and my time is way more than half done. That means I'm not going to finish the paper in the allotted time. So I decided I'd read the paper twice the night before. I, I knew basically the content, and it felt so weird trying to read anyway, especially to a hostile audience. You know, there's something about when your audience likes you, it's so much easier to talk to them. But in this audience are a lot of people who don't like me, and so it's harder. And I decided just to put the paper down and wing it. Well, when I did that, Gerard's ideas, a lot of them were said— but a few of mine leaked in. You understand what I'm saying? And one of my ideas was that if you take a Baptist boy who loves Jesus and a Methodist boy who loves Jesus and a Catholic boy who loves Jesus and a Pentecostal boy who loves Jesus and an Adventist boy who loves Jesus, and they all study theology until they have one or two PhDs, what you're going to find is the Baptist is still a Baptist, the Methodist is still a Methodist, the Catholic is still a Catholic, the Pentecostal is still a Pentecostal, and the Adventist may or not be an Adventist. And uh, what's going to go on there is that 12 years of theological study is going to bring them not one iota closer to the present truth. If I said, it will make a difference. If you give me these boys, I can help them all become Adventists. With these men, I can't do anything. I said theological studies do not bring you closer to the truth. I said that to a hundred theologians. Yes. <laughs> so you can ask me privately how it went after the meeting. You know? <laughs> but uh, what happened there at Tosk is we there were a group of people, Mark Finley was one of them, and I won't tell you other names. He's probably the most prominent among them that decided on what was called the third way. And their view was that this is a religious liberty issue. They were saying that, like, if I pretend to be Mark Finley, no, that's kind of silly, so let me say something different. If I pretend to be someone that was in that third way group, and I'm going to talk to you like I'm them, I'm going to say that I personally am opposed to ordaining women to the gospel ministry. Personally, I think it's not biblical. But I think that we ought to allow people who think it is biblical to do it. For the same reason that God allowed Israel to have a king when it wasn't a good idea. You follow the logic of this idea. That's the logic of the third way. Now let me tell you why I disagreed with it. I can have a conviction for me and you can have a conviction for you. But I can't have a conviction for you. You can't have a conviction for me. That's the limits I talked about with Heidi and I, uh, that I stand in the judgment for me, you stand for you. In the same sense, the church can't really have a conviction for me. The church can't be convicted that I should do something. But the church can have a conviction for itself. I can't have a conviction for the church. The church has a conviction for itself. So let's go back there to the story of King Saul. Israel decided they wanted a king. That's what they decided. So if they do decide they want a king, then you know what they should do? They should get a king. But we as a church, our church decided not to ordain women to the gospel ministry. Then as a church, the church has a conviction for itself. So the church itself should do what it's convicted to do and you can't have a conviction that it should do something different. I can have an idea what the church should do. You can have an idea what the church should do but we aren't the church. Only the church can have a conviction for itself. If that didn't make any sense to you at all then I wish you were here last time and if you were and still does not make any sense I don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm going to say it one more time and move on. Liberty is a huge issue inside the church. In North America, we understand it a little better than many places because of self-supporting work. That is, it's pretty well understood in North America that you don't need permission if you want to go start a ministry in your town. If you want to go start a, you know, some sort of welfare ministry or other ministry or do Bible work, you don't need permission from the pastor for that. And I think a lot of you are pastors, and I think if your members decided to do ministry, it would kind of make you happy. Right? Wouldn't it kind of kind of, you'd be kind of pleased that they want to do it? And uh, but when I went to Malaysia, one of my favorite parts of ministry in North America is Young Disciple Camp. I just love Young Disciple Camp. I have seen people converted there, become mission-minded there. If you never heard of it, you can just ask me later. It's just a great place for children to be. Uh, my wife and I have been there every summer since we got married, 16 summers in a row. And we're going to be there two weeks from now. Inshallah. Uh, this is in Inshalim, Washington, north of Spokane. Anyway, you can ask me later about it. So when I moved to Malaysia, it was important to me that we do something like that in Malaysia. So I taught my young people how to do it and we organized our own uh, Well, what to call ourselves. We can't call ourselves Young Disciple Camp. So we just made up our own name, but it was the same idea. Borneo Young Believers, I think is what we called ourselves. The Borneo Young Believers, BYB. And it was a great experience. Now, six months before we did it, I wrote to the youth director in the conference. It's not the conference where I work, because the conference where I work doesn't have enough Adventists. So we organized it in a different conference in Malaysia that has a lot of Adventists you know, so the kids can come. Now, I wrote to the youth director. I used from a publication of the church it had his WhatsApp number and his email address, and I wrote to him what we're going to do, and, and uh, he never wrote back. And I sent messages periodically, and he never responded. And uh, so I sent them to the president, and he never wrote back. And I'm, I'm not too surprised. A lot of times in Asia, people don't write back. So I, I, we just went forward, and we did it. And the first day of camp, the president called me, very upset. He said, why didn't you ask permission? I said, my dear sir, I don't know what I said, I'm just making this up. I said, my dear sir, I did try to inform you, because I like to work together with the churches. I did try to let you know, and and the youth director, neither of you ever responded to me. But we don't need permission. I said, Moses and Joshua were there when God commissioned 70 men to take some of the responsibilities. And 68 of them came to the center. But Eldad and Medad stayed back there in the camp. And when God poured out his spirit, the surprising thing was he poured it out also on Eldad and Medad. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? And Joshua heard about it, and he was distressed. Uh, I'm putting my own words in his mouth. He said, Moses, these guys aren't following protocol. They're not going with the program. They aren't here at center, and they're also prophesying. He said, Moses, forbid them. Do you remember what Moses said back? Moses said to Joshua, do you envy for my sake, Joshua? I wish everyone was a prophet. That is, the opinion of Moses was, he doesn't have to control everything to be content. It's all right with him if God does something somewhere else. That just gets his work done without any stress of his part. So fast forward a couple thousand years, James and John are wandering, they hear some commotion, they go over and they see a man is casting out demons and he does it in the name of Jesus. They said, "Um Jesus never told you to do that. Don't use his name. That's for us." The man probably was sheepish. And anyway, they accomplished their mission. They came back to Jesus and when he was teaching, they began to, as they heard his teaching, they began to think maybe they had gotten something wrong, so they confessed. You remember reading that in the Bible when they confessed? They said, uh, Jesus, we, uh, we told him to stop. And Jesus said, Forbid them not. He said, Those that aren't against us are on our part. Anyone who does a miracle in my name isn't lightly going to speak evil about me. Let's say that another way. Jesus said, that people who go promoting the Adventist church with their own initiatives aren't likely going to lightly speak evil about the Adventist church. If they're trying to bring people in, they're not likely going to be trying to pull people out. That by letting them carry their initiatives, it just takes a burden off the administration. It's hard to control everything. We don't have the wherewithal to do it. Let God work with the people. So I wrote a whole little paper on this called Forbid Them Not. If you Google my name, Pruitt, Forbid Them Not, you'll find it, because it was published in Adventist Affirm some years ago. And you could find it there. But the version in Adventist Affirm was too long for the people in that conference. So I made it shorter, about five pages long instead of 20. And, uh, (laughs) And I sent it again. And... Nothing has changed as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, but I, I'm talking to you instead of them right now, and I'm saying that religious liberty works like this, that I don't feel like I need to control you, and you should not feel like you need to control me. I don't control my wife, and she doesn't control me. I don't control the church, the church doesn't control me. That, that is, we work together, I hope you do good work, and you should hope I do good work, We work together because our mission is similar. And when our mission is similar, maybe sometimes we can even work together closer than that because it just works out that way. And if it does, that'll be very nice. And then if we have to part ways later, we won't be enemies. That'll be just fine. But religious liberty involves an idea that God can administer things without me. I don't have to be the director of all It's not rule or ruin. Have you ever known anyone that was rule or ruin? Anyone that had, like the idea didn't start with them, it was going to end with them, that kind of idea. That's not in harmony with the principle that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So, that was women's ordination. But now I forgot all the rest of them. (laughs) What was the one you said, sir? Sir? Oh, music. So there is a movement right now on YouTube called Reframe. Like, like, frame again, that that, that kind of reframe. And uh, there's a strong movement among young people. I'd say the spearhead of this, I would say, is David Asherick. I'd say probably that's about where it began. And I think probably Ty has been brought in with him, Ty Gibson. Gibson. And uh, this movement would be saying that our views that we've taught as a church for many decades about music really aren't based on what the prophets say. They're based on bad data and cultural conditioning. And if we really would look at what the prophets are saying, we would come to a different conclusion about music, one that was more inclusive of the, the various Genres that are in CCM. If that sounds like Greek to you, I mean the various types of music being listened to often by young people today. I strongly disagree. And if you want to like waste some time, you could do a Google search for Pruitt Asherick Music. And you would find a hundred-page dialogue between us on this topic. And... Uh, yeah, interesting. Have you read it already? No, but I'd like to. <laughs> and I think that you could say that music is a doubtful disputation. But listen up before you before you jump my ship. <coughs> Ellen White says a lot about music. Um I think I've made a fairly exhaustive collection of those materials. Uh, My friend in Germany, Christopher Kramp, has done an exhaustive study in the Bible about music. He's an orchestra director. That's what he does for a living. And he preaches about music. I think if you saw him on YouTube, you'd be interested. He preaches in English. You'll understand it. Uh, You'd be interested in what he has to say, Christopher Kramp. When it comes to... welcome. Not when, it, not when it comes to welcome. When it comes to welcome, we should be very welcoming. But uh, when it comes to music, we need to teach about caution. Now, let me explain about caution. If I put a two by four right here on, lying flat on the floor, I think I could successfully walk it even at a pretty good clip. A two by four isn't so hard to walk. But if you put it 60 feet up, and now you ask me to walk it, this is much harder. I'm okay at four. I can jump. But at 60 feet, this is scary, right? And it's, it's the same two by four. But somehow, what's going on is the risk has gone up a lot, Right? And as risk goes up, caution goes up. That is the natural way for us. The issue with music is that musicology is at a low level, the science is at a low level, so that we don't really understand physiologically and emotionally and spiritually how music works. We have a lot of guesswork, but the research isn't really in. There is research in, there's research on both sides, and there's a lot of it, and it's not all good. Like, there's a lot of nonsense that's promoted on this topic. And uh, what I would say to you is that when we're in a state where the prophets have said, have said a lot of interesting things and caution about dance music and about loud music and boisterous and what happened in Indiana— When they've said that, about how Satan uses music to influence moral decisions and to change the way, that to create a lack of desire for Jesus, these are pretty heavy risks. These are like, your your children could go to hell. they're, They're pretty heavy risks. And as the risk goes higher, what should also go higher? So that even if I can't prove to you that this style of music is dangerous... I can give some evidence that it might be, and in view of the risk, I'm not going to take the risk. I don't want to say that unless it can be proven, I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. Let me back up, and you might see the connection of this to Lucifer. When Lucifer began to say that there's, this is before the earth was made, that there are other ways to live than following God's artificial law. Suppose you were an angel then. How could you know that Lucifer is wrong? It's very hard. Really, what you have to go by is some evidence that God is loving and that he's obviously powerful and he's obviously smart. Those three things, the evidence for those is abundant. And based on those three things together, it seems like that his law ought to be in my best interest. And what he says about it should be trustworthy. Do you see how those two ideas follow the evidence? What Lucifer is saying is, where's the proof? And the answer is, I don't have proof. But he doesn't even have evidence. What he has, he might manufacture something that looks like, I suppose he probably did manufacture something that looked like evidence. But all that I see about God's trustworthiness, the evidence seems that God is trustworthy. And so faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is a step based on the evidence. As an angel, I need to say, I don't have proof, but it looks to me that God is right and I'm choosing to trust him because he seems trustworthy. It seems sensible to trust him because everything he's ever done looks trustworthy. And so for that reason, I'm going this way. What what Lucifer would say is, you're a fool. You have no proof. Where is your proof? Uh, uh, Look how happy I am. I'm doing fine. I've been going this way for how I don't know, I don't know how they measure time outside of this planet, you know I don't know so, maybe weeks you know maybe well, weeks might work outside of the planet but that's based on days isn't it I don't know I've been doing it for a while and uh, I'm doing fine. This is almost what Lucifer said to Eve. He didn't say it but it was implied. You know I, I'm here. I, look, i I can talk, and. Uh, So that even from the very beginning, righteousness was based on faith. Long before earth was created, angels had to determine whether to live by faith or by proof. Faith or experiment. Faith or experiment. So when God created earth and he put those two trees in the middle, those two trees were faith and experiment. The tree of life, that's trusting God that everything he's done is for your benefit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, take a try and see how it goes. What I'm trying to say to you is music fits in this category. You really can't prove that there's anything wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only way you can give any evidence that it's bad is the evidence that God is trustworthy in what he said. And I think in music, that's where we're at. We really can't prove it from science. We can look at the inspired statements and we can see that this is a big issue. We can see in Daniel 3, it's probably going to be a big issue in the end of time. I mean, Daniel 3 is the model used for for Revelation 13 with the image and and everything. And like if... If ever the word genre would be in the English Bible, would be in Daniel 3. You know, where it says every kind of music. It says it over and over and over there. That would be every genre, every genre, every genre. They were designed to cause people to bow down. So yeah, people argue about music. And I think that on this issue, it's not just a theory. According to the prophet, it's serious. And it warrants caution. What was someone over here brought up one? I forgot what it was. And I even forgot who it was. What did you brought up? Something. Potluck during COVID. Potluck during COVID. Yeah. So this is a real a great example of the hard issue that we're facing personally about risk versus fellowship. Well, it wasn't so much because of the, the risk of getting people sick. It was more like the government says we should not be having meals like this. So it was more like a law thing, like we're disobeying the government. Okay. This is not an act of worship. It wasn't, she wasn't really concerned about getting sick. I understand. She doesn't wear masks. Well, I want to talk about that one too, because that's, that, that, that's, that is a different issue. So let me try and talk about them both. On the issue of risk versus uh, fellowship... The Bible is the one that commands us to have fellowship. That's, that's Hebrews 10, right? It says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we don't really have an a option about whether or not we fellowship with each other. But we don't have to defy the government. In many parts of the world, and even right now in Malaysia, in West Malaysia, it's prudent to meet in houses. We don't have to meet in a church. It's prudent to meet in houses. And it could happen even here in this country, during times when we don't want to look defiant, that we be prudent to meet in homes. And if we meet in homes, I think you'll find the fellowship isn't one whit lower quality than if you meet under a steeple. It's the same business. And uh, it's actually easier to invite the neighbors when you meet in your home. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have a lot of neighbors that will come to your house that will never come under your steeple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe the best thing that could ever happen is have our churches closed. That was something maybe... That In Malaysia, I've tried to convince everyone there that when you do a prophecy series, don't do it in the church. It ju- but, but, but how can you afford a hall? And, and some halls will back out on you. You know, even if you do it in a home and only get six people, you're probably going to baptize three of them. It's just to be... So what I'm really trying to t- say to you about this fellowship versus risk thing is that defiance is a poor quality for us as a church to show. Do you know about the Civil War? When the Civil War started, Ellen White was here in Michigan, and in Wisconsin next door, there were some zealous Adventists who realized the commandment says, thou shalt not kill. And so they wrote to the uh, governor of their territory and said, we... The Seventh-day Adventist will not take part in the war effort. Even if you shoot us, we will not. Which sounds to me, if I didn't have a prophet to correct my thinking, noble. I kind of like boldness and courage, and it makes me happy when I see it. But Ellen White rebuked that group. She didn't rebuke them for their position of noncombatancy. She rebuked them for their position of defiance that made God's people look like they were in sympathy with the rebellion. That is, what Wisconsin reads in this letter is that Adventists want slaves. Or whatever, you know, something like that. It looks like that we're on the wrong side. I want to be sure that we learn a principle, that though liberty is precious, we want to be sure when the Bible talks about liberty, it usually isn't about religious liberty. When the Bible talks about liberty, it's usually about your personal liberty being sacrificed for the good of people who would get the wrong idea or be injured by your abuse of your personal liberty. That's usually how the Bible uses the word liberty. That was important to me. And it made me forget what I was talking about. Can you remind me of what I'm talking about? A potluck. Oh, pot <laughs> yes, Okay. Yes. Okay. Very good. About fellowship. About not being defiant. That we can't afford to relate to the government in a way that looks like that we don't care about their authority. Mm-hmm. You, you, You should know the reason that A.T. Jones rejected Ellen White as a prophet. There is more than one reason, but this is one of the key ones. It was because he was teaching that when the Sunday law comes, we should, as, as Daniel opened his window to pray, we should go out and weed our garden. We should carry about our business out in the open on Sunday, So everyone can see that we are not submitting to this encroachment on our personal liberties. And what Ellen White had to say is, no, Sunday is a fine time to do evangelism. It's a fine time to have meetings, and we do not need to appear defiant. What is required is that we keep the Sabbath holy that we honor the Sabbath. It's not required that we, that we weed our garden on Sunday, right? That we mow it on that day. And, that, and this looked to A.T. Jones like base compromise. And on that basis, there's a book called Lessons from the Reformation. In that book, he identifies Ellen White as a modern Jezebel. Ooh. Uh, I'm not recommending that you read it, but I'm telling you, this, this, is, what, this is what came of him. So, what's the issue of liberty? Part of, part of liberty is that we have liberty in ourselves, but we do not use our liberty as an occasion of stumbling. That we modify our own behavior, we restrict ourselves in a way that helps us have a better chance of helping other people. In Malaysia we have some very oppressive laws. One of the laws in Malaysia is that I, as a non-Muslim, cannot use the word Allah. I can't, and there's 25 words in this list. They're all the basic words that are used by a certain class of missionaries to the Islamic religion. Those who are pretending, as it were, to be Muslims. Do you know about that? Let me preach about it for about eight minutes, and then I'll I'll review and close. In the world right now, both in Adventism and outside of Adventism, it's in both places, the mission movement of the church has been perplexed by Islam for a long time. And finally, about 25 years ago, they began to hit on a way that we could reach them without... Dying, which has always been the major objection. You know, it, it, it's always been. And this was the way I can pretend to be a Muslim. The way I talk, the way I act, the way I use the Quran, I can be. And, and what was found is that in the Quran, you know, I've read the Quran very carefully and taken notes in the whole thing. In the Quran, you can show the Sabbath on Saturday you can show the unconscious state of man in death you can show the resurrection you can show the judgment you can show that you don't even have to show you can just read that Jesus is the messiah the name of Jesus in the Quran is Jesus the messiah that's how he always appears every time you know 25 times in there you can show a lot of things you can show in the Quran that Jesus is the creator And so as I showed those things to you, you now began to be a Muslim that loves Jesus and views him as the healer and as the Messiah and as the Savior. And this movement began to spread around both in and outside of the Adventist church as a way to reach them. But I'll tell you, it has some serious problems. For one thing, the Quran is a terrible book. It certainly denies that Jesus is the Son of God. Distinctly denies his divinity. Certainly teaches that good deeds cancel bad deeds, so that the judgment amounts to God weighing your good deeds against your bad deeds. Do you know that this is the basis of every false religion? It's the basis of the whole bunch of them, and it's plainly stated there. Plainly stated there, ladies, you'll like this one. That was tongue-in-cheek. That's a good way to bite your tongue. It says that to the husbands, if your woman disobeys you, you should have a talking to her. If she disobeys you a second time, you should deny intimacy to her. If she denies you a third time, you should hit her! (laughs) That's in the Quran. It's not a book designed to lower domestic violence. Because most people they have a principle of morality in their head that's ideal and they try to get to it, but they have a hard time. If the principle you're trying to get to is turn the other cheek, then that's going to help you escape domestic violence. But if, the, if your goal principle is wait to the third time before you hit, that isn't a high enough goal. You follow what I'm saying? It's not a good book. The Quran teaches more than 40 times that there is an eternal burning hell and it has a lot of details about it. The length of the chain that's going to tie you in the fire, the nature of the waves, and a tree down there that has like goblin heads growing on it for fruit. And what it says there is that the fires of hell are going to burn you physically. It's going to be your body in it, not just a soul. It's going to burn your skin off, but that means you can't feel pain anymore. So God will recreate your skin so you can and he'll do that over and over so that God is personally involved in making sure that you feel pain through eternity I'm telling you it's not a good book and so if you if you use it what I'm, what I'm saying is that when you use the when you use the Quran the way that this mission movement is using it What you're really doing is using it the same way that Catholics use the Bible to prove Catholicism. You're using it not very honestly. You're using it leaving out things you know it says that say just the opposite. You're you're twisting the book. You can twist it successfully because it's not very well written. So that it's possible to twist it. But you know the Quran specifically has the the story of the fall of Lucifer three times, and it's Lucifer's version. Lucifer's version, let me tell you the Quran story of it. It says that God created the angels, and probably the same day, it's what it looks like in the Quran, He created Adam and Eve. And then He commanded all the angels to bow down to Adam. And one of the angels said... Hey, we're created, he's created, that's the same, I'm not going to bow down to him. That's Lucifer. That's Satan's version of the story. Satan was asked to bow down to who? Jesus. And he said, no. no. Lucifer's version of the story is in the Quran three times. So I don't think that book was made up by Muhammad. I think Gabriel really did appear to him, if you understand what I mean. I think he really did get some inspiration there. And it wasn't the, the a good Gabriel. So I don't use the Quran at all. When I've told you these people that I've talked about that I've reached, that we've reached in Islam, that's not using the Quran at all. Not a bit. Because it would be inconsistent for me to use it today and then tomorrow say, uh, uh, sorry, it's, It's not. So all I've said in this period isn't a lot, but it's that liberty, our personal liberty, needs to be subjected to the needs of people and that when it comes to the government, we have to be sure that we don't demand our rights in a way that makes us look defiant. The social justice concept glorifies defiance as a way to win rights. Jesus glorified submission as a way to win souls. It's quite different. In principle, it's different. So when I am coming, I want to see in the commandment, the gospel, in the second commandment, I want to see myself, that I obey, but I can't afford to try to force you So what do I do? Have you read the statement at Ellen White? It's been quoted in several places. It's not the work of any man to prescribe the work of any other man contrary to his own convictions of duty. It is right to give counsel and to suggest plans but every man must be left free to seek direction from God whose he is and whom he serves. Has anyone read that so you can witness that I didn't just make it up? Where is that phone? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) But some of you with a phone can find it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's in more than one place. I know that. Did you catch the idea in it? It's, the, it's about limits. It says that the limit is that I can counsel you. I can tell you what I think. I can make suggestions of what you should do. But I can't tell you that God told me that you should. I can't say, I know you need to. Someone might be saying, well, can't you say to someone who's living with their girlfriend, you know they should move out? You can say that God said it. Yeah, you can be very, very sure about that. God says. But as far as our personal conviction, I can't have convictions for you, you can't have convictions for me. And because of this, on these issues that are doubtful, we have to give each other some grace. Have to give it, and we should give it warmly, not begrudgingly. Boy, I have one minute, and I can't finish that in a minute. I'm going to give you a precursor on tomorrow's lecture. It's that there's a reason why Jesus does not appear in the sky and tell everyone to be Seventh-day Adventist. It's because we would all do it out of fear. And if we did it out of fear, we would not do it out of love and trust. But from the beginning, love and trust is the one thing that leads to holy living. And so if God tried to move us that way with great power, if He just appeared in a dream to us and told us, quit drinking or you're going to burn in hell, if He did that, we would quit. But our characters would not change. So God takes a stand-back approach of teaching that gives us an ability to obey out of love and trust at the risk of our disobedience. But we don't give that same grace to people. If, if they obey us because of fear, either that we're going to hurt them or God is going to hurt them. That is, if, if we come on too strong, we remove from them the option of developing love and trust. I, I can't develop that very well now, but that's tomorrow. We're going to pray now and we'll be done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would bless us as we learn about liberty and imbibe its principles. I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.